0: When one watches some tired hack on the platform, mechanically repeating the familiar phrases, one often has a curious feeling that one is not watching a live human being, but some kind of dummy. A feeling which suddenly becomes stronger at moments when the light catches the speaker's spectacles and turns them into blank disks which seem to have no eyes behind them. And this is not altogether fanciful, A speaker who uses that kind of phraseology has gone some distance towards turning himself into a machine. The appropriate noises are coming out of his larynx, but his brain is not involved, as it would be if he were choosing his words for himself. Have you ever felt this way when listening to politicians or pundits? These words were written in a 1946 essay by George Orwell called Politics and the English Language. In the essay, Orwell lambasts his contemporaries for their use of vague and often meaningless language. He also discusses how the misuse of language leads to foolish thinking and ultimately the loss of independence. In many ways, his essay anticipates his 1949 dystopian novel called 1984. I'll get back to it later. In the real year, 1984, I was a young parishioner in a country Christian church in Gibsonville, North Carolina. My mom still attends that church because I know so many of the parishioners there many of whom are now in their 70s, 80s, and beyond. Every now and then my mom will call me up to tell me that unfortunately one of them has passed. The first time she used this term, it took me a moment to process. It had always been customary to say died or passed away. That last phrase I admit is only slightly less vague than past. I suppose I was confused because past is typically used as a transitive verb. That is, it has an object, as in, past the exam or past the lumbering pickup truck on the road. Once I had heard this term a few times, past, and not just from my mother, but from other people as well, it began to bother me also because it's homophone, P-A-S-T, almost makes a mockery of death itself. But mostly saying past instead of died is offensive because the use of euphemism Obscures meaning. Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, in his 1995 book called On Killing, says that insulating ourselves from direct discussion of a topic leads not only to misunderstanding of it, but often to a perverse obsession with it. Like the Victorians, when it came to sex, modern society avoids candid discussion of, or even exposure to, death. Here's what Grossman says in the introduction to his book. Throughout history, man has been surrounded by close and personal death and killing. When family members died of disease, lingering injury, or old age, they died in the home. When they died anywhere close to home, their corpses were brought to the house, or cave, or hut, or hovel, and prepared for burial by the family. In that world, each family did its own killing and cleaning of domestic animals. Death was a part of life. Of course, such practices strike most of us today as archaic and macabre. Grossman continues here, quote, And then in just the last few generations, everything began to change. Slaughterhouses and refrigeration insulated us from the necessity of killing our own food animals. Modern medicine began to cure diseases, and it became increasingly rare for us to die in the youth and prime of our lives. And nursing homes, hospitals, and mortuaries insulated us from the death of the elderly. Children began to grow up having never truly understood where their food came from, and suddenly. Western civilizations seem to have decided that killing, killing anything at all, was increasingly hidden, private, mysterious, frightening and dirty." End quote. Grossman says that oddly our culture is more obsessed with killing than ever. Slasher films, sometimes even called torture porn, like The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, And the Saw series. Well, they're more popular than ever. Here's another quote from Grossman It seems that when a society does not have natural processes, such as sex, death, and killing before it, that society will respond by denying and warping that aspect of nature. As our technology insulates us from a specific aspect of reality, Our societal response seems to be to slip deep into bizarre dreams about that which we flee. Dreams spun from the fantasy stuff of denial. Dreams that can become dangerous societal nightmares as we sink deeper into their tempting web of fantasy. Orwell envisioned a nightmarish society in his novel 1984, In the fictional nation of Oceania, language is manipulated in order to render even dissident thought impossible. The process begins with eliminating precise words and replacing them with variants or degrees of single words. For example, instead of saying wonderful, one should say double plus good. The consolidation of language into fewer and fewer words, Orwell suggested, limited the scope of thought, making people easier to control. I can't help but wonder what effect emojis and texting shortcuts are having IRL. WBU. I suppose the real question is, will it be necessary for a government to impose language restrictions like those in 1984 on us, if we are doing it to ourselves. Of course, clinical psychologist Jordan Peterson famously challenged the Canadian government when it tried to dictate the use of certain pronouns. And although that example is quite chilling, this kind of speech control often occurs via social mechanisms rather than government fiat. But who needs a Ministry of Truth when we've got Facebook and YouTube removing content that doesn't conform to community standards? Who needs memory holes when you've got Mark Zuckerberg? Or when you've got loud and angry protesters shouting down peaceful speakers like Ben Shapiro or Candace Owens when they visit college campuses? A little closer to the Ministry of Truth might be the Associated Press, Its style book sets the standard for how journalists, in the U.S. at least, use the English language. Tim Graham of the Media Research Center wrote an essay criticizing the AP's latest version of its style book. He said, the guide has tilted increasingly left, that is politically left, in recent editions. He gives these examples. And these are direct quotes from the AP style book. Here's one. Not all people fall under one of two categories for sex or gender, according to leading medical organizations. So, avoid references to both, either or opposite sexes or genders as a way to encompass all people. Here's another one. We now say not to use the archaic and sexist term mistress for a woman in a long-term sexual relationship with and financially supported by a man who is married to someone else. Instead, use an alternative like companion or lover on first reference. Provide details later. Here's another one from the AP Stylebook. Avoid the dehumanizing collective noun, the homeless, instead using constructions like homeless people, people without housing, or people without homes. That's the end of Graham's examples from the AP style book. He quickly points out the AP's double standard when it comes to dehumanizing terms. Graham says, quote, You can place them squarely on the left when they don't mind socially distancing from unborn babies with the dehumanizing term fetus, which they teach is, quote, preferred in many cases, including almost all scientific and medical uses, unquote not to mention the legislative uses, Graham says. In some cases, the AP still demands clarity. As of 2013, at least, the style book says to use die and death. Do not use euphemisms like passed on or passed away, AP says. Sorry, Mom, but according to the AP, P-A-S-S-E-D is... D-E-A-D. But Graham says, overall, the AP has made a decision to forego clarity for, quote, politically correct muddiness. This is exactly the criticism that Orwell hurled at political and academic writers of his day. In Politics and the English Language, his main beef was writers using writing that sounded sophisticated but lacked any real meaning. He attacked stock phrases like lay the foundation and leaves much to be desired. He called such stock phrases an invasion of one's mind, and he thought his contemporaries were lazy for stringing together a series of ready-made phrases into a speech or essay. Every such phrase anesthetizes a portion of one's brain, Orwell said. Here's one of the excerpts that Orwell eviscerates in his essay. He doesn't name the author, but cites it from a publication called Politics. Here's the excerpt. On the one side, we have the free personality. By definition, it is not neurotic, for it has neither conflict nor dream. Its desires, such as they are, are transparent. For they are just what institutional approval keeps in the forefront of consciousness. Another institutional pattern would alter their number and intensity. There is little in them that is natural, irreducible, or culturally dangerous. But on the other side, the social bond itself is nothing but the mutual reflection of these self secure integrities. Say what? Again, these are not Orwell's words, but an example of the type of writing he abhorred. Orwell said this, Modern writing, at its worst, does not consist in picking out words for the sake of their meaning and inventing images in order to make the meaning clearer. It consists in gumming together long strips of words, which have already been set in order by someone else, and making the result presentable by sheer humbug. He also said, by using stale metaphors, similes, and idioms, you save much mental effort, at the cost of leaving your meaning vague, not only for your reader, but for yourself. This doesn't seem quite to be our chief problem today. Or perhaps it is, but our ready-made phrases like, at the end of the day, or my favorite logical conclusion, it is what it is, they don't sound quite as complex as the prefabricated phrases of Orwell's day. Perhaps our brains are being anesthetized with cheaper drugs. Our political writing does seem to have something in common with the kind of writing that Orwell criticized. Later in his essay he writes, "The word fascism has now no meaning except in so far as it signifies something not desirable. The words democracy, socialism, freedom, patriotic, realistic, justice have each of them several different meanings which cannot be reconciled with one another." In the case of a word like democracy, not only is there no agreed definition, but the attempt to make one is resisted from all sides. It is almost universally felt that when we call a country democratic, we are praising it. Consequently, the defenders of every kind of regime claim that it is a democracy and fear that they might have to stop using the word if it were tied down to any one meaning. This reduced state of consciousness, Orwell says, if not indispensable, is at any rate favorable to political conformity. Talk show host Dave Rubin has picked up on the degradation of language and the way it has been manipulated for political purposes. Um, Here is Rubin in a recent interview, talking about how the word Nazi has been used to such an extent that it's essentially meaningless, but meaningless in a dangerous way. I'll let him explain.
1: The idea, or that's normalizing the words, it's also... That when the real Nazis reemerge, and I don't, I don't mean the guys that are going to wear the swastika, but whatever the next version of the worst sort of totalitarianism, when it arrives, and by the way, I think it's going to come from the left. But when it comes, there will be good people who will be screaming about it, but the boy will have cried wolf so many times, and this is what I'm worried about. And I think that maybe belies what your question is. I am really worried about this because. Every time now that I go on Twitter and I see someone called a Nazi, a public person called a Nazi, I look at what they did, and usually it's that they've stood up for free speech. They said that there are biological differences between men and women. I mean, the litany of things that we've talked about here. The problem is, my gut instinct now is if someone's called a Nazi, they're probably just misunderstood and, imp- and probably correct. Now, that's pretty dangerous, actually, because I think what's going to happen is when the real bad guys show up, Nobody's going to care anymore. No, a certain set of people will care, but they will be unable to even find the language with which to fight it because the language will have been so entirely decimated and and we won't understand where it's coming from or how it got there.
0: Now, I didn't want to end this podcast episode without reading at least a small snippet of George Orwell's 1984 because I think that he as a fiction writer did exactly what he was imploring English writers and speakers to do, that is use language in a precise way to convey images and ideas and ultimately to share humanity through writing. I think it's really important in this passage. And again, I, I haven't really looked at any criticism on it. But at the end of the passage, he talks about or he mentions Shakespeare. And there's really no discussion of it in the passage. You'll see what I mean in just a minute when I read it. But in this scene, he is um, Orwell is describing a dream sequence of the main character, Winston Smith. And I'm going to read part of that dream sequence, at the end of which he just makes a passing reference to Shakespeare. Now, to me, Shakespeare represents the epitome of the use of language to convey not only meaning and emotion, but pure humanity. Shakespeare captured the struggle for power. Shakespeare captured... Jealousy and greed and love and human understanding, ambition, and so many other aspects that make us human. I think Orwell felt like, just as I felt, I couldn't finish off this episode without reading directly from his novel, that Orwell just could not not mention Shakespeare. Now of course Orwell was British but I think especially as as English speakers Shakespeare resonates with us and has done for hundreds of years now because of his ability to use language in precisely the opposite way than what that which Orwell was criticizing in his essay. Here's the passage from 1984 chapter 3. Suddenly, he was standing on short, springy turf on a summer evening when the slanting rays of the sun gilded the ground. The landscape that he was looking at recurred so often in his dreams that he was never fully certain whether or not he had seen it in the real world. In his waking thoughts, he called it the golden country. It was an old, rabbit-bitten pasture with a foot track wandering across it and a molehill here and there. In the ragged hedge on the opposite side of the field, the boughs of the elm trees were swaying very faintly in the breeze, their leaves just stirring in dense masses like women's hair. Somewhere near at hand, though out of sight, there was a clear, slow-moving stream where dace were swimming in the pools under the willow trees. The girl with dark hair was coming toward him across the field. With what seemed a single movement, she tore off her clothes and flung them disdainfully aside. Her body was white and smooth, but it aroused no desire in him. Indeed, he barely looked at it. What overwhelmed him in that instant was admiration for the gesture with which she had thrown her clothes aside. With its grace and carelessness, it seemed to annihilate a whole culture, a whole system of thought, as though Big Brother and the party and the thought police could all be swept into nothingness by a single splendid movement of the arm. That, too, was a gesture belonging to the ancient time. Winston woke up with the word Shakespeare on his lips. In 1984, the characters are forced not only to use certain language but to accept official slogans of the ruling party War is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. Of course, these slogans make no sense, but the characters in 1984 have largely had their thinking handicapped by fear and manipulation of information. In his essay on language and politics, George Orwell said, people who write in this manner usually have a general emotional meaning. They dislike one thing and want to express solidarity with another, but they are not interested in the detail of what they are saying. If Twitter were around in the 20th century, do you think Orwell would have filed hashtags like me too and with me in this category? We do have a habit of repeating hackneyed images and mindlessly employing common phraseology. I think our chief problem concerning language today related to what Lieutenant Colonel Grossman was saying about killing and death. We avoid talking about the subject in any meaningful way. With other uncomfortable topics, we use euphemisms like past to obscure the harsh realities around us. We also have this in common with Orwell. In his essay, Orwell wrote, Defenseless villages are bombarded from the air. The inhabitants driven out into the countryside. The cattle machine gunned. The huts set on fire with incendiary bullets. This is called pacification. Millions of peasants are robbed of their farms and sent trudging along the roads with no more than they can carry. This is called transfer of population or rectification of frontiers. People are imprisoned for years without trial or shot in the back of the neck or sent to die of scurvy in Arctic lumber camps. This is called elimination of unreliable elements. Such phraseology is needed if one wants to name things without calling up mental pictures of them. He also criticized this kind of writing, um, particularly because it takes the place of thinking. Here's what Orwell said. The attraction of this way of writing is that it is easy. It is easier, even quicker, once you have the habit to say, in my opinion, it is not a justifiable assumption that, than it is to say, I think. I think the conclusion here is that language affects thought And thought is ultimately who we are. It makes me wonder why, in his other well known novel, Orwell used animals to tell the story. Wasn't it Descartes who said, I think, therefore I am? If we aren't using precise language, we aren't thinking. And if we aren't thinking, are we really living? I love that Descartes put his conclusion in the first person. I think. I am. He didn't say, man thinks, therefore he is. Or worse, in my opinion, It is a not unjustifiable assumption that human thought proves the existence of a race of hominids distinguished from lesser creatures by its awareness of cognitive processes. No, with Descartes, it's first person. It should be with us, too, because ultimately, the responsibility to think rests with me and with you.